Chapter 2. Choice. I have a bit of a reputation for not reading directions. To me, directions are more like suggestions. They simply represent one of many ways something can be assembled. My sons and I play basketball in our driveway almost every night, so I thought it would be fun to buy them a new basketball hoop. The day we had all dreamt about finally arrived. The new, improved, glorious basketball hoop was delivered to our doorstep. I led my boys in our assembly of the new hoop, but I was surprised to discover it would be one of the most difficult things I have ever had to put together. The time came to place the finishing piece, the backboard, on top of the pole. We thought we were just minutes away from enjoying the fruits of our labor, so you can imagine our disappointment when we realized that the backboard was unbelievably heavy and the pole was as tall as the Empire State Building. There was no way we could lift it. Everything was awkward to hold and impossible to maneuver, and the bolts didn't seem to line up properly with the holes. We were failing miserably, and the kids were running away from me as I called out to heaven for curses upon the heads of those who designed the basketball hoop in the first place. I asked myself the questions any father would ask, who designed this thing? Why are my children weeping? Why did I ever have children? Why is God punishing me like this? Finally, in a last-ditch effort to secure victory from the clutches of defeat, I read the directions. It was then that I realized I had failed to notice the crucial placement of one two-inch bolt which allowed the pole to lower and the builder to install the backboard atop the pole swiftly and effortlessly. Whoops! Do you ever get so focused on a detail that you fail to see the big picture? I had held that bolt in my hand countless times throughout the day and never considered that the manufacturer's instructions were purposely written in the manner, order, and process in which they were for a reason. I had failed to see the big picture and trust the plans, which only brought me misery and would have ultimately led to a moment of failure in the form of a dysfunctional pole in my driveway and some seriously disappointed boys. It's easy to recognize a simple mistake or oversight like this in our lives, but it can also happen spiritually. And of course, misunderstanding God is significantly more detrimental than misunderstanding a manufacturer's directions for a toy. If we're not careful, we approach God thinking that we understand more than we do, and before we know it, we have lived our entire lives without Him. My friend from chapter 1 who asked me to assume she knew nothing was wise, she made the choice to understand the Bible and avoid misunderstanding God. She was humble and honest enough to know she needed to get her head around the big picture of the Bible in order to understand her Creator's intentions. That was both brilliant and responsible on her part. Over several conversations, we began to pursue her goal of understanding God. If you are up to it, I'd like to give you a quick rundown of the big picture of the Bible just like I did with my friend. Let's just start at the beginning. We'll talk about where humanity came from and how and why humanity is now distant from God. Here we go. Creation. The first book of the Bible, Genesis, is the best place to start. The very first sentence of the book of Genesis says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis 1.1. This statement is a big deal because it contains a core belief of Christian thought and teaching, which is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything in them. This means we're created creatures. Christ's followers believe that we were created from a loving God. We don't believe that we are just a more highly evolved animal. As a Christ follower, I believe in intelligent design, which is the belief that a supernatural being created the heavens and the earth to include humanity. What's important to catch here is this, a creator has ownership over its creation by nature of their relationship. 
In other words, when someone creates something, he or she owns it. The patent is their unique design. So as a Christ follower, I don't believe that I have ownership over my life. More simply put, I am subject to my creator because my creator created me. I believe that there's a moral and spiritual authority over me, and that authority is my creator, God. Now, I don't believe this creator is a distant, unapproachable authority, but one who loves me, enjoys spending time with me, and always has my best interests in mind. This idea of subjection to a creator is mentioned later in the Bible by the Apostle Paul. Paul wrote many letters called epistles to people, churches, and communities, and these letters are included in the Bible. In one of these letters named Romans, Paul explained the relationship between God and humanity. Referring to God as the potter and humanity as the clay, Paul wrote, Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Romans 9, 21. This metaphor captures the nature of our relationship with God as the potter who has the right to form the clay humanity into whatever he wishes because he is the shaper of the clay. From here, it would be natural to ask, why did God create me the way that I am? This is an important question too, and the Bible addresses it. Genesis 1:26 reads, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image. This does not mean we are God, but rather we reflect the nature of God. According to the Bible, God is spirit, John 4, 24. Therefore, if God is spiritual and we are created in his image, we too are spiritual. We have a soul. Our souls distinguish us from the rest of his creation. We were created to be at one with our creator, and in our spiritual DNA, we cannot fully rest or realize our created purpose until we satisfy the questions about God. We are the only part of creation that longs for God, worships Him, and prays to Him. We're unique in these ways. Trees don't look to heaven and pray. Dogs don't seek their Creator, and we all know that cats are generally evil. Our desire to answer these big questions is unique to our humanity. This instinct of ours is not some higher form of evolution, as many outside faith in God would have you believe. It's something God placed within humans when He created us. I hope you can start to see why this is so exciting. It's amazing that we have a creator who loves us enough to think us into existence and show us his love. Let's dig a little deeper. Dominion over the earth. In order to understand why God created us, we can continue to look at Genesis. Genesis 1:27 and 28 says, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. These verses further reiterate the belief that we're created beings who are made in the image of God. Christians believe God made humanity to rule over the rest of creation. This is a concept called dominion. This responsibility means that we're to utilize the earth for our needs and benefits, and we're supposed to take care of the earth. We're not supposed to abuse or destroy it or its inhabitants. We shouldn't waste or pollute, but make use of the earth's resources. We didn't evolve to the top of the food chain. God created us to be there. We were made to rule the earth, care for it, and receive from it. The Garden of Eden the next part of Genesis describes the condition of the world that God intended humanity to enjoy. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. 
The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food, Genesis 2, 8, and 9. So God created a garden called Eden. Eden is the Hebrew word for paradise, which pretty much says it all. In the Garden of Eden, the weather was perfect. All of Adam's and Eve's needs were met. All of the animals' needs were met. The Ohio State Buckeyes were the NCAA champions, and the Cleveland Browns won the Super Bowl, okay? Maybe not the football stuff. Eden contained everything that humanity needed. It was a perfect existence. This state of perfection was the condition we were created to enjoy. Then God created the first man who was named Adam. The Bible says that it was not good for Adam to be alone, so God made the first woman, Eve, to be his companion, Genesis 2.18. Every need and desire of theirs was met in the Garden of Eden. The desires of their hearts and bodies were fulfilled, and their physical needs were met. Even nature was a complement to humanity in the Garden of Eden. Rains never turned into floods or winds into tornadoes and animals never ate people in the Garden of Eden. Cats didn't even plot to overthrow humanity. There was complete safety and abundant provision. Everything served its good purpose. Adam and Eve also had a perfect relationship with each other. They may be the only couple who for a time had a perfect marriage. They loved each other emotionally, mentally, and physically in complete and total freedom. They even walked around naked all the time and without embarrassment. What is even more amazing was Adam's and Eve's perfect relationship with God. They had unfettered access to him and trusted him completely. What we've read in Genesis 1 and 2 so far is the intended relationships between God and human, between human and human, and even between human and nature. It was paradise. That's what God created for us, and that's how he wanted to interact with us. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In the middle of all this paradise, God also planted the concept of choice. The scripture in Genesis 2.15-17 through 17 reads, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Adam and Eve could eat anything they wanted except from this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They knew that if they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, death would be their consequence. God presented them with choice. Since we know their relationship with God was perfect at first, we also know that choice is a component of God's perfect relationship with humanity. More on that later. The Fall What happened next is what Christians believe to be one of the most devastating events in the history of humanity. We call it the Fall. The Fall is an account of how humanity lost or fell from our perfect relationship with God. Genesis 3.1 begins, now the serpent, hold on a moment. First, allow me to explain that we aren't dealing with just any ordinary snake here. The Bible tells us that Satan, whom we will read about more in a moment, took the form of a snake in the garden to tempt God's beloved creation to choose evil over good. Whenever we read about the serpent in Genesis, we're actually reading about Satan. The rest of the verse reads, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Genesis 3.1 This moment is critical. You see, Satan entered the garden and presented Eve with a fundamental question, Did God really say he wanted her to doubt God's heart? As you get more familiar with the Bible, you'll learn that at the center of all other temptations is the temptation to question God's love. 
feet and skull. Let's read what happened next in Genesis 3-2. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God did say, You must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden. You must not touch it or you will die. But Satan was unrelenting. Twisting God's words, he tempted her again. You will not certainly die. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, Genesis 3, 4, and 5. When Satan first questioned Eve about what God really said, he was undermining God and his credibility. Eve already knew the answer. She even told the serpent, God did say. Then Satan challenged Eve's faith by introducing doubt. It was Satan's way of misleading her. He was more or less telling her, God didn't really mean that you'll die. He just doesn't want you to be powerful like him. Come on, eat the fruit. It's delicious. Spoiler alert, Eve ate the forbidden fruit. Adam did too. Satan tempted Adam and Eve to question God, and they took the bait. They had a choice to either obey God or to violate his law. And to the detriment of all of humanity, they knowingly defied God's word, and humanity fell from our perfect relationship with him. Consequences of the Fall Upon God's discovery that Adam and Eve had eaten the forbidden fruit, he said to Eve, I will make your pains in childbearing very severe. With painful labor, you will give birth to children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. To Adam he said, Because you listened to your wife and ate fruit from the tree about which I commanded you, you must not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil you will eat food from it all the days of your life. Genesis 3.16 and 17 In addition to these specific consequences, the Bible says that when humanity fell, sin was introduced to the world. Sin is best understood as independence manifesting itself in disobedience to God. This disobedience causes us to be imperfect. Imagine if your shirt was perfectly white. If you got one speck of dirt on it, no matter how little your shirt would cease to be perfectly white, right? This same imperfection is what happens to humanity in the spiritual sense. Even a little sin, a small lie, a little bit of selfishness, or a touch of greed is enough to make us imperfect. I don't know about you, but I've never met anyone who seriously considered themselves a perfect individual. This imperfection is what the Bible is talking about when it reads, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3, 23. Sin is a big deal. The introduction of sin accounts for the suffering and injustice we experience today. The Apostle Paul wrote in the New Testament, For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of God, Romans 8, 20 and 21. This verse explains why life is hard. When humanity fell, all of creation fell with it. Paradise was stripped away. This is why rain now turns into floods and winds become tornadoes. This is why animals now live in contention with human beings. Sin is why you can only pet a lion once. Sin causes things like houses or cars to deteriorate over time instead of becoming nicer. It's why our human bodies degenerate. As we grow older, we become weaker and more fragile. We don't become more vigorous with age. The older you get and the more you learn ideally, you should theoretically be able to perform at a higher level. 
When I play basketball with my kids, I can outsmart them. I see the game better than they do. I can see passing lanes and weaknesses in defenses better than they can. But because of the curse, I age my body won't respond to my wisdom like it used to. I can see the opening in the defense, but I can't get my legs to move fast enough to get to it. I can see the passing lane, but when I throw the ball hard, it hurts my shoulder. I could take a charge at my 6'2 son barreling down the lane, but to be honest, I don't feel like getting carted out of the gym in an ambulance. I have to work in the morning. The world changed because of the fall. Sin entered the world the moment Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and humanity will forever suffer from the curse. The results of the curse extend beyond painful childbirth, intense manual labor, and a conflicted world at war with itself. The curse is also the reason for our condition of being separated from God. Because of humanity's rebellion and the curse that followed, our perfect relationship with Him is broken. The curse accounts for even more than our broken relationship with God. Romans 5.12 reads, Just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people. You and I are born having sinful natures because of the curse. It's embedded within us. Our nature is to rebel against God. We have to consciously work at what is against our nature and what is unnatural for us, which is reflecting God's image. We have to work at being generous, kind, and loving. It's not our natural instinct. We are no longer basically good. We have to work at being good. Why? Because of the fall, because one decision invited imperfection into our perfect existence with God. I know all that sounds pretty dismal, but the good news is God ultimately wants to spare humanity from the ravages of sin. God's antidote, His Son, Jesus Christ. You may have heard the Christian concept called salvation, being saved, or being born again. These are ways to describe the cure for the consequences of straying from God's perfect design. I'm getting ahead of myself, but know that we'll talk plenty about God's redemptive plan to send Jesus and His accomplishments in later chapters. What's important to know at this point in our discussion is that Adam and Eve were not tricked. Their decision was not an accident, and no innocent parties were involved in this tragedy. Adam and Eve faced a temptation and consciously rebelled against God, and their rebellion is essential to understanding our sinful nature. We are not cursed because they ate a couple pieces of fruit. The curse is not God smugly implementing an elective punishment to teach us a lesson. The curse is a consequence of the condition of the hearts of the first humans. The Bible puts it this way, the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. They exercise choice to trust themselves above trusting God because of their desire to rule, to reign, and to have control over their own lives. The creation did not want to be subject to their creator, and that's the origin of human sin. Love necessitates choice. Some of the questions I'm frequently asked, which are very fair questions, go something like, Okay, Jeff, if God loves us, and if He is a loving God, why did He let evil into the garden in the first place? If we're supposed to be living in paradise, why did He plant the forbidden tree? If God hates all the results of sin like pain and death, why doesn't He just eliminate sin altogether? If God is going to defeat Satan one day, why didn't he just obliterate Satan as soon as he went against God? What's he waiting for? Again, these are all valid questions, and the answer for all of them starts with the concept of choice. I know the concept of choice may be confusing, so let's work at understanding it for a minute. Imagine cheeseburgers are the only food available for you to eat. You probably wouldn't live that long, but that's beside the point. 
You're not choosing a cheeseburger at every meal. You're eating it by default because you have no other option. But if you have the freedom to eat anything you want, including cheeseburgers, eating a cheeseburger suddenly becomes your choice. You're probably thinking, enough about cheeseburgers, Jeff. What are you talking about? What I'm trying to explain here is that there cannot be love without choice. When we're mandated to do something, we don't have any freedom because we don't have any choice. In essence, we aren't making a choice if we don't have a second option. Love necessitates choice. God did not program us to operate like robots that follow him around and do whatever he says. God is the God of invitation. He is the God of love, and what God wants more than anything is what Jesus expressed in the greatest commandment. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. A second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself, Matthew 22, 37-39. God wants us to love him, but we can't actually love God unless we have the choice to reject him. There cannot be love without choice. The only way for God to grant freedom to Adam and Eve so that they could choose to love him was to plant two trees. And the only way for them to love God was for them to choose not to eat from the tree that he said was forbidden. They needed to choose God because God desires true love rather than a forced submission, which is not love at all. God wants your love and he wants us to love each other, but I can't truly love you unless I have the freedom to reject you. I'll state it again because it's that important. I can't love you unless I have the choice to reject you. My wife, Heidi, and I have a funny picture that illustrates the concept of choice. The photo shows Heidi wearing a wedding dress and holding a shotgun pointed in my direction, and I have my hands up. The photo suggests that Heidi forced me to marry her at gunpoint. We can laugh about this because that's not how our marriage happened. But if it did happen this way, our marriage would not be a picture of love. Why not? Because the scenario depicted in the photo indicates a lack of choice and love is a choice. When I proposed to Heidi, I made a choice. I had to reject hundreds of thousands of other women who would have loved to have been my wife. I could reject Heidi today, but if I were to reject her, I would lose my family. I would lose our children, the security of our relationship, the joy, and the joint mission of life that we share. If I were to reject Heidi, I'd lose the life I have with her and all the wonderful benefits of being with her. Of course, she has the choice to reject me too. We can't love without the freedom of choice. I'm not forced to love Heidi. I choose to love Heidi. When God told Adam and Eve that they could eat from any tree in the garden except from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he told them exactly what would happen. If you do, you will die, Genesis 2.17. But God left it up to Adam and Eve, and by doing so he granted them the freedom of choice. And Adam and Eve wouldn't die because they angered God. They would die because our Creator is the one who sustains life. However, when the created walks away from the creator, they can't maintain themselves and there are enormous and eternal consequences. We have that same freedom in our relationship with God. No one is forcing you to choose him. A bolt of lightning won't hit you if you choose to reject him. We all have the freedom to decide whether we want to be independent of our creator God. We are free to run our own lives, or we can come under his love and inherent authority, begin a relationship with him, and receive all the benefits of that relationship. However, rejecting that relationship with God has enormous and eternal consequences. Judgment. 
The Bible says that each human being will stand in judgment, a time when God will evaluate everything we ever said, did, or thought, and he will reward or punish us accordingly. Think of it as a courtroom trial in which the evidence of our love for God and our commitments to serve and obey him is weighed. The evidence will illustrate the facts of our hearts and reveal the trajectories of our lives. The evidence will illuminate the reality of those who lived a life in such a manner that they were living independently of God, as well as those who demonstrated the desire to love and follow him. In other words, judgment doesn't mean that good people go to heaven and bad people go to hell. Judgment means that people who walked with God during their time on earth will spend eternity in heaven where God is and people who walked away from him are forever granted their independence and will spend eternity in hell where God is not. The direction we move in on this earth is the same direction our souls move when our bodies die. Let's unpack these two paths a bit more. Hell. God grants the people who spent their lifetimes living freely and independently of him what they wanted, and he gives it to them for eternity. God stops pursuing them for good after their physical bodies die. He won't keep convicting them of their sin or of his love. He grants them the ultimate separation for which they'd been asking during their time on earth. Tragically, this means they will spend eternity in hell, where people are forever separated from his love, grace, mercy, and protection from punishment. In the last book of the Bible, Revelation, hell is described as a lake of fire, Revelation 20:14 and 15. Some Christians interpret this lake literally, and others read it metaphorically, but it is universally agreed upon by all Christians that hell is eternal separation from God. Hell is the reality, and it's a tragedy. It's certainly not the picture of freedom and independence that these folks desired. The Bible states clearly that, there is a way that appears to be right, but in the end it leads to death. Proverbs 14:12. God gave us freedom to do whatever we want. If we want to live like we're our own gods, we can, but the consequences are eternal. We don't get a second chance. A popular question among philosophical circles is, how can God be both loving and also send people to hell? The answer to that question is simple. He doesn't send people to hell. A person's choices determine the natural trajectory of his or her life, and the final destination for people who do not choose God is hell. I know it sounds harsh, and believe me, it's not a subject Christians take lightly. But we have to remember that God gives us the freedom to choose Him. God does not send people to hell, we send ourselves. It's an incredible act of love that He warns us of this and offers Himself to us through the wisdom of the Bible. As you continue to read on, you'll see that God actually went to great lengths to bring us back to himself. The truth about hell is that God doesn't want anyone to go there. Heaven. Heaven is the inverse of hell. If hell is horrifying, desolate, and miserable, heaven is perfect, blissful, and peaceful. About heaven, the Apostle John says, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, Revelation 21, 3 and 4. Christians believe that after they die, they're welcomed into heaven a place where a perfect relationship with God is reestablished for eternity. In heaven, we regain the all-access pass to God and his eternal love. Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians 5.1, We have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, and God fashioned us for this very purpose, 2 Corinthians 5.5. 5. 
Christians believe our promise from God is to spend eternity in heaven with Him, and we get to heaven by choosing to accept Jesus' offer of salvation. Christians believe Jesus' words in John 14, 6. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe that through Jesus' death and resurrection, He is able to provide the forgiveness of our sin that allows us to freely enter heaven. And if we choose to accept this forgiveness, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us of all unrighteousness, John 1, 9. Jesus' greatest desire and promise to His followers is that we will one day join Him in heaven. He said, My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I am going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am, John 14, 2 and 3. For the Christ follower, this promise gives assurance and security to our lives. No matter what we face or when we die, we will join Jesus in heaven. The present choice. The choice we make is not somewhere off in the future, and neither are its consequences. We are making choices right now in this very moment. If we're not choosing to give our lives to God, then we're choosing to be without God. Just like if I hadn't chosen to marry Heidi, I would not be married to her right now. So if you're not actively choosing Christ, it doesn't matter whether you're verbalizing disdain for the church, adopting a quiet indifference, or procrastinating your commitment to God, you're still making a choice. Let's remember what Adam and Eve lost too. They were living in a paradise designed specifically for them by God. Adam and Eve had freedom of choice. They could do whatever they wanted. This shows us that God wants to bless us. His character hasn't changed. Now that we have fallen, He wants to forgive our sins and provide us with security again. He absolutely wants what's best for us. But He also tells us that we have to choose Him. He created us to seek, to respond, to interact, to pursue, and to have a relationship with Him. But if we rebel from our created purpose, that is our choice. It comes as no surprise in the Bible when God says, Today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 6.2. Whatever intentions we may have to search for God or respond to Him in the future, those intentions are irrelevant because we're making that decision right now. It's crucial to see our decisions for what they are because their consequences are immense. Clearly put, if we are not deciding to pursue God, we are deciding to separate ourselves from Him. Moving forward. I really love telling the story of the Bible because a lot of people have never heard it. In fact, most people I have talked to about this subject either think God is not a person to have a relationship with or He is constantly angry with them. Either view of God usually means that people write Him off and live without Him. But what if the story I am conveying is really what God is like? What if the Bible is truly filled with His words and the things He wants us to know about Him? I'm excited for you to read on. Maybe this is all starting to make more sense. Remember our deal. I'm not asking you to believe, but just to have an open mind. So let's keep talking. Headspace. Connect with God. God has already made clear that He has chosen to reach out to humanity when He gave His Son Jesus as a payment for our sin. In the book of Matthew, we see that God is accessible. He is willing and excited to be in relationship with us and be our provision. Matthew 7, 7 through 11 says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. 
For everyone who asks receives, the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone, or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Have you ever thought about following or not following God as a choice? Talk to God about things that make it hard for you to choose him and ask for his help navigating those struggles. Connect with others. If every human being has a spiritual trajectory and eternal destination, this is a super important conversation to have with friends. We tend to ignore and even avoid spiritual conversations because they can cause disagreements or simply because it's a big subject to understand however these conversations are really important. Who are some safe people you can you begin to discuss eternal implications with? Is there a trusted community of faith, such as a church, where you could continue to discover more about the spiritual side of life? What does this mean for you? Maybe something that you've read so far is the piece of information you needed about God to say, I'm all in. If that's where you are, the Bible says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved, Romans 10.9. If you believe Jesus is who he says he is, that he is God, if you believe Jesus raised himself from the dead and that he has the power to lay his life down and reclaim it, and if you recognize your sin nature and need for a savior and are ready to follow God, all you have to do to start a relationship with him is to talk to him what Christ followers call prayer. If you're ready to pray that prayer, don't worry about saying the right words. It isn't important. God knows exactly what you think and exactly what you mean, and he knows the sincerity of your heart. So if you're there, go for it. 